Uh, we're going to read together from Mark 15, and then Simon is going to come and speak to us. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one who you call the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Good evening, everyone. My name's Simon, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to join with you and to share with you this evening. Let's pray. Lord, some of us have known you a long time. Some of us just a short while. And some, Lord, we don't know you yet. We pray, Lord, because of today, because of this evening, because of all that this weekend means, that we would know you better. And we welcome you to come by your spirit. We ask that you'll meet with us and speak to us. Amen. Well, it's impossible to capture and convey the magnitude of what this day represents, of what the cross of Christ means. It is Abba's abattoir. And before it, we should be in stunned silence and awe. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, we heard it read by Steve, had a vision of Jesus, a vision of Jesus at the cross. And three times in describing Jesus, that scene, that scenario, that event, the prophet Isaiah used the word suffering. He spoke about Jesus as the man of suffering, the one who took up our pain and bore our suffering. He said he received the suffering of his soul. Tonight we're thinking about the suffering 
of Jesus, the Son of God, for us to put an end to suffering. There was a wonderful theologian, church minister called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he was a pastor in Germany during the time of the Second World War, and he publicly protested and worked against Hitler and the Nazis, and inevitably he was imprisoned, and just weeks before the end of the war, he was executed. But before that, he smuggled out on little bits of paper some of the thoughts that he had whilst he was imprisoned for a year. And on one of them were these strange words in which he wrote, only the suffering God can help. We don't know whether he was thinking about his own situation and the only help that could come to him was that of the Lord or whether he was looking at the canvas, the landscape of Germany, and having seen the ubermensch and the mighty supermen rise up, he realized what was needed was the suffering God. Jesus, who was meek and lowly. God, who lived in our skin and walked in our shoes and drank the earthly cup to its lees. The suffering one. In the ancient statement of belief, the summary of it called the creed, almost a millennia and a half old, a summary of what Christians believe succinctly, it says this, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and was buried. He descended to the dead. And I want us to think about those sufferings just briefly this evening, on this holy evening. Firstly, Jesus' suffering was volitional. It was of his own will. He exercised his own agency on that dreadful occasion. Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know that I have power to release you or crucify you? And Jesus replied, you have authority over me only because it has been given to you from above. Jesus was not the hapless or helpless victim of situation and circumstance. He wasn't a sort of, uh, as one song by Kathy Matei says, a beautiful fool who was assassinated, the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus was in complete control of what was going on. He was the divine choreographer, the divine conductor. The cross was not an unexpected, tragic denouement to the Jesus story. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus prayed aloud. It, he said it was for this very reason, for this hour that I have come. Jesus was born to die. Crib and cross, crib and cross are made of the same wood. The story of Easter from one perspective is that it's wicked men with wicked schemes trying to put out the light of the world. And that is true. Yet from God's perspective, it is a ransom being paid for the sins of the world. It is God stepping into the heart of darkness. God 
to the rescue, God who comes to save. God reigns supreme. God holds the reins of history. And the devil is not pulling a fast one. And God is not caught out. God is not caught napping. God is working out his purposes. And in the death of Jesus, he is putting death to death. It is, it was volitional. Secondly, Jesus' suffering is foundational. Christianity is cross-shaped. You can't have Christianity, you can't have Christ without his cross. All the noble religions have their divinities, their sacred spaces, their holy people, their inspired texts, their spiritual devotions, their acts of mercy, and so on. But only Christianity has a suffering God who comes to suffer with us and for us to put an end to suffering. The cross of Christ is the crux of the matter. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. My dear old dad is a preacher and he was once preaching in a chapel down in the West Country where we're from and, my, and he was preaching at my sister's church and there were some visitors there that day and one of them was sat next to my sister. He didn't know my sister was the daughter of the preacher and my father was preaching on the cross, that old rugged cross. And at the end of it, this chap turned to my sister and said, oh, it's just all old ground. It's just old ground. As if somehow we've moved onto better ground or higher ground. We've, we've graduated from this ground. But it is old ground. And it's timeless, eternal ground. And a tree planted at Calvary with God in flesh dying upon it reaches back to that tree in the Garden of Eden where sin entered the world and brought a great undoing. And it reaches forward into the garden in paradise where there is the tree of life. It is old ground. It is timeless ground. It's perfect ground. And it's a battleground where the powers of darkness meet the light of the world and lose. And it's holy ground where heaven joins earth where God meets with humankind and it's solid ground where the sins of the world, the weight of the sins of the world can be carried. Father of mathematics, Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough, I'll move the world. Well, Calvary is that place and the cross is that lever. And when we look to it and trust in it and say yes to it, and respond to it, we are moved and brought home to God and given an eternity with him. It's foundational. And then thirdly, Jesus' suffering was historical. The creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We've just heard that in the reading. Jesus' death was not a metaphor. And it wasn't a myth. 
It was a real event in time and space and a place. The psychoanalyst Carl Jung once said that the cross was just a kind of metaphysical symbol of fire. I mean, how silly is that? He said, two sticks of wood crossed over and rubbed together make fire, and that's what the, sim, the cross somehow symbolizes. He didn't understand it. No, it was a very real event in real time, in real space, in real history, in real geography, with a real purpose. Jesus dying really at the hands of real men. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in Judea. We know this historically between AD 26 and AD 36. The three greatest historians of the ancient world in the first century, Josephus, who was Jewish, Philo, who was Greek, and Tacitus, who was Roman, all talk about Pilate. We know where, we know when, we know who, we know what. We know who crucified Jesus, it was Pilate. It was the Roman guard under the orders of that man. We know why he did so, to keep the political peace, just to keep things calm, and because of the fear of trouble. We know where, we're told it was on a rocky hill called Golgotha, literally the place of the skull outside the city walls. We know when, it was during a Passover feast, when they were celebrating the exodus, the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. And we know that he was tried at eight o'clock in the morning. We know that he was crucified at nine in the morning. We know that he breathed his last at three in the afternoon. And looking at all sorts of historical figures and, and calendars and dates, many scholars believe it happened at three o'clock on April the 3rd in AD 33. Amazing. A real event in real history, real geography, real time, real space. It really happened. It's not a symbol. The question is why and for whom? Fourthly, Jesus' suffering was brutal. As I said, it happened at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. This was a killing place, Abba's abattoir. And Jesus suffered, that's what we say, he suffered the loveliest life that the world has ever known, crushed against a tree. He suffered betrayal, he suffered abandonment by his friends, he suffered a false trial, he suffered the beating by the Jewish authorities. He suffered mocking by the Jewish leaders, humiliation, then another flogging by the Romans, then crucifixion, and then the ignominy and injustice of it all. Today, people wear crosses. 2,000 years ago, crosses wore people. The Roman historian Cicero said it was the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. The very word should be banned from Roman speech and it's an act that should never be seen. It was a form of torture that was preserved for the worst criminals in the Roman Empire to instill fear and subjugate people into being respectful and not uprising. I saw that there were some children in the room, so I'm not going to share some of the things I was going to say. 
In 1986, the Journal of American Medical Association published a whole series of articles on torture, and they did crucifixion first. It is the worst form. Our word excruciating literally means out of the cross, and it is the worst form of death. And what finally killed Jesus was the shock and suffocation and trauma and heart failure. But that was not the worst of it. The worst of it was not the physical pain. The worst of it was not the emotional pain of betrayal and loss of his, of, by friends. The, the worst of it was that his eternal father, with whom he'd been one for, from eons and eons since the beginning, in eternity, the eternal logos of God, when Jesus takes our place at the cross, when he becomes a substitute for our sins, when the punishment we deserve is put upon him, when God judges him for the wrong that we have done, then the lights go out and Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he who knew no sin becomes sin, the father turns away. Trauma. But he did it, as I've already said, willingly, volitionally, freely, of his own agency for us. Why? Because he couldn't conceive of an eternity without us. And there was no other way to bring us back. Someone had to pay for the wrong that we had done. Someone had to step into the breach between us and God and bring us together. And Jesus, who is God for man and man for God, is there at the cross. We read in the gospel narratives, he is between these two criminals. But there, he is between time and eternity. There he is between heaven and earth. There he is between God and humankind. There he is between the holy and the unholy. And there in himself, in his body, in his flesh, at the cross he reaches out and the two become one through him. God didn't design the cross. It was the vile handiwork of the demonic. But God a deeper magic was at work with God and God chose to use it as the means whereby the wrong we've done could be dealt with. The wrong that we've done, his justice could be met, his justice satisfied, his blood is shed, the wrong in our life is washed away and heaven is opened up for us to come home. God uses this evil death as the death knell for evil. And then fifthly, Jesus' death was a scandal. The Apostle Paul called the message of Christ crucified a stumbling block. The, the old Greek word is scandalon, from which we get scandal. He says it's a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The word there for foolishness is the word moron, from which we get our word moron. <laughs> And to many people looking at the cross, they say, this is absurd. This is an offense. This is scandalous. This is moronic. The philosopher Hegel once wrote, mad, mad, mad is the message of a God who becomes his own hapless victim and gets himself nailed to a cross. 
And for many, it does look that way. It seems that way. Why would anyone believe in a God who dies on a cross for the sins of the world? What is that about? There's a moral offense. How can God's justice and wrath be such as to require being satisfied by the death of his son? Does our crime fit that punishment? There's an ethical offense. How can it be that justice, how can it be justice for an innocent person to die for the sins of the wrong? That's an alien justice. It's a philosophical offense. How can the suffering of one man in one place at one time be said to have a universal and eternal significance? It's a theological offense. How can God's son become sin and die? It's an existential offense. How can I benefit from the death of someone I'd not met at the place I've never been 4,000 miles away 2,000 years ago? And it's a religious offense. How dare you say that I'm so bad and my sin is so dirty that it required the death of the most beautiful man on a cross. How can that be? And I understand all of those protests. And yet God chose this to be the man and the means and the moment where my sin could be dealt with. Yeah, it's moronic. Yes, it's a scandal. But St. Paul says, for those who look and believe, it's the power of God to save you, to rescue you, to bring you home. And then finally, his death was for us personal. We heard in that reading that Jesus was murdered in the place of Barabbas. You know, it's interesting that the word Barabbas he was a thief, uh, he was a murderer. The word Barabbas literally means Bar Abbas, the son of the father. And Jesus, the eternal son of the eternal father God, is, is killed in the place of Barabbas. But he's not only dying in the place of Barabbas, he's dying in the place of all of us. The irony is that Jesus suffers under Pontius Pilate but he's suffering for Pontius Pilate. He's dying for him. And repeatedly, dozens of times in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus' death was for us, for us, for us, for me, and for you personally. He died in our place, in our stead, as our substitute. Jesus summed it up himself on that night be, that he was betrayed. He said, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. And he did it freely. He did it willingly. He wouldn't be held back from doing it because he couldn't conceive of forever without us with him. The prophet Isaiah saw this. He said it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. This is Friday, but Sunday's coming. And the light of the world was snuffed out on the Friday, but the light came back on early on the Sunday morning. As 
the prophet saw that after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by knowing him. My righteous servant will acquit many, for he will carry their sins. And all that remains is the question, why? I mean, why ever would you do it? Why would God become flesh, be born to die, go to the cross freely, take upon himself the punishment for the sins that we've committed? Why would he do it? Why ever? Who's ever heard of a thing like that? He did it because he loved us. God so loved the world. He didn't just love it. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life, life to the full, life forever, life with him. Jesus went to hell and back to get us back and he suffered under Pontius Pilate and he suffered in great pain and he suffered for you and me and he did not suffer in vain. The early church historian Tertullian tells us that Pontius Pilate came to believe himself became a Christian. Many of you here this evening, you know this, you understand this, you've responded to it, you've said yes and you believe. But others of you have never really comprehended and this evening Jesus who died on the cross for you says, come to me, put your trust in me, look to me, give your life to me, and let me give my life to you. Amen.